Hey, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. Today I'm preaching at Southridge Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. So if you would pray uh, with me for this moment at Southridge Church. And today you have the privilege to hear from our friend David Nasser. David is not just a friend of the church. He's my closest friend. And today he is going to open the Word of God and share it with you. I want you to put your hands together and welcome David Nasser to the stage. Good morning. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you was uh, given to us this, this moment to come together as your people and to sing songs that are true about you and uh, to see people around us join us in declaring these things as a testimony of who you are and who you continue to be. I, I walked around God this morning, this this room, and I watched people in their 70s and people who are 17 sing the same words because they're true about you. And I thank you, God, that we're going to look at a text today that has the same valid, redemptive truth in the life of a millionaire and somebody who's just dead broke, somebody who's really, really healthy, and someone who just got really bad news this week that the cancer's back. Thank you, God, that your truth. Your truth is applicational in every one of our lives. And so we come now and we submit ourselves before your word and we pray that your word would do what your word does, that it would bring conviction where conviction is needed. It would bring comfort and assurance where your word is needed. God, it would bring action where you want us, Holy Spirit, that we would just be moldable and, and available now in this very moment to what you have for us. Help us, God, from the front row to the back, to the one watching online, uh, to just come now, putty in your hands, and say, God, I'm not done yet. Make me, at the end of this, look more like your son, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Such an honor to be back. I think uh, I've gotten to come to this great church now 18, maybe 19 years in a row. And this week, I, um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, preach a text and... Uh, I told Alex earlier in the week, on, on Monday, I called him and I said, hey, I feel like God's given me a particular text uh, because of a circumstance that I'll explain here in just a little while uh, in, in the message. Uh, and uh, I went back and tried to watch the archives. And in the eight years that you guys actually post stuff online, I don't think I've preached this particular text. And he was like, bro, like eight months ago till now, this is a completely different church. The way God's blessing us, the way that we're growing, plus our people uh, aren't going to remember anyway. All right. So he said, don't worry, just go ahead and do it if you have. But I know in seven years that I've been with you, uh, in the 17, 18 years, I, I might have preached this before, but not certainly in the last seven or eight. And it's a really, really simple text, if I could just bring it to you. Uh, and, and it's just John 6, 30. If you have your Bibles, if you want to get them out with me, uh, we're going to look at this particular moment in Scripture where Jesus makes a statement about himself, and uh, it's about as simple as it gets, but it goes to the very core of everything that we gather for here today. And uh, it, if it was um, uh, a Bible verse, all right, uh, that could be the nutshell, the, the Bible 
it, you know, just everything that we believe in, in one text, it would be this particular text. So if we could go ahead and put it up, I want to just read this. Uh, these are, uh, before we read it, let me just say this. These are what we call fighting words, y'all. Uh, I'm from the South. I know I don't look like a guy from the South. I'm originally from Iran, but even though when I was in Iran, I was from South Iran, all right? So I've always been a Southern, all right? So I'm from the South. And in the South, uh, we like to call something fighting words when you make a statement and it causes people to, to bow up a little bit. And when Jesus makes the statement that we're about to read 1,989 years ago, they were the very statements that a guy named Charles Spurgeon calls bloody words. They were the very statements that not only caused a stir, not only caused a fight, but eventually caused them to nail Jesus to a cross. That's why Charles Spurgeon calls them bloody words. Uh, he calls them red letter words, not because the words of Jesus in the Bible are red letter, but because they cost him his blood upon a cross. And they are bloody words 2,000 years ago, and they're bloody words today. Uh, about 180,000 people this year will die. We call them the martyrs of our faith. We call them our brothers and sisters, our Christian family who will lose their life because they believe what I'm about to say. And and here's what's weird. I'll say it at the early service here at a church that believes this, and it's not controversial. As a matter of fact, it's amen, hallelujah, we believe this. That's why we've gathered. When, I'm gonna, when I read this, what I'm about to read you, no one's going to get up and get mad and walk out of the room. But just know that, that this isn't stuff that's, that's fighting words in L.A. and in New York. Today, if you really believe what I'm about to read and really proclaim what I'm about to read, it might cost you a promotion at work here in Tulsa. That might not be persecution, but it's certainly opposition. Because these words leave no wiggle room in who Jesus is and leave no like wiggle room in who someone else might be if they claim to be what only God himself should claim to be. And these words are about as controversial as they get. They are about as confrontational as they get. They're about as clear as they get, but they're not cruel. Uh, I was telling my staff the other day, we need more clarity as a team. And someone on my team said, you know, clarity is kindness. For us to have clarity as a team, this was about one particular project that we were working on and we're kind of muddy on who gets to play what role. And one of my team said, clarity is such kindness. It'd be, it would be so kind to me if I knew with clarity what my role in this is. And, and isn't it true that Jesus gets crystal clear in what we're about to read, but he's not doing it as an act of, of confrontation for cruelty. He's doing it as an act of confrontation for kindness. And, and I know sometimes it feels like the world we live in, confrontation feels rude. But don't you want to hear what you need to hear? Let me ask you a question. If, if there was a bump on your neck, there was a bump, you know, on your leg. And you went to the doctor and you were concerned about this bump. At first you thought maybe it was a mosquito, you know, bite gone rogue, but it got worse and worse. And then you went and they, they did an x-ray. And from the x-ray, they said, let's look at it a little further. They went in and you complain on the whole way. Like, they're just maxing out my insurance, you know. But then deep down inside, you know, maybe there is something. And then they did an MRI. And then now, three meetings later with this doctor, you're sitting in his office. And he's asked to sit with you. And he said, bring your spouse. And you're sitting there in his office, and he comes in. Do you want him to tell you what you want to hear, or do you want him to tell you what you need to hear? Maybe what you want to hear 
is not what you need to hear in the sense that maybe what you want to hear is it's fine, we'll just medicate it, it'll be okay, but what you need to hear is the truth. How many of you would want the truth even if it's not the good news, if it's not the fun news, even if it's not the easy thing? How many, why would we lower our standard for God? <laughs> We'd want that from one physician. Why would we want it not from the ultimate healer? And so Jesus confronts. These are fighting words because they're confrontational. Jesus makes eye contact and he says what he says, but it's love talking. It's clarity in kindness when Jesus says what he says. And this is everything in a nutshell that we believe as Christians. Jesus says to them, I am. I am, he says, the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, if you're taking notes, let me just clarify. Jesus is saying this. I am everything. Everything in this world is nothing, and I am everything, and everything else is a distant second to me. He's saying all the fame in this world will not leave you satisfied. All the money in this world will not leave you satisfied. All the, the bad and the good, all the, all the things that you think are, are going to ultimately bring you satisfaction are ultimately going to leave you hungry again. Everything in this world will fail you except me. Everything in this world is a distant second in trying to completely satisfy the appetite of your soul, and I am the only one who can do that. There's a banqueting table promising to satisfy. If I can just get invited by my boss to go play golf with him and then get the promotion, finally things will get better. You get the promotion and realize things didn't necessarily get better. If I can just get the right house in that neighborhood by, you know, Southern Hills. If I can just go and get invited by these ladies to this luncheon and be invited. If I could just get more people to follow me on social gram and build my uh, Instagram and, and build my, like, social media. If I could, there's so many, if I could just, then things will get better. If I could just trade out, you know, my old wife with a newer model wife or, or, or vice versa. If I could just get rid of this double chin, triple chin. Can I just tell you, like everything in this world promises to bring satisfaction. And Jesus says, everything is nothing but me. I am the bread of life. Everything else will leave you hungry. Now, that's amen, hallelujah about stuff like, I don't know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, hey, I don't care if it's legal or not. CBD will not ultimately satisfy you. You know, whatever. That's like, that's like amen, hallelujah on like really obvious things. But it's not just obvious things that are, that are stoned to make, make, like, to, made to look like bread. We're talking about even good things. Your pastor, Alex, Dr. Hamaya, when he said, um, He's my dearest friend, ditto. Alex is my dearest friend. Meredith, his wife, is my wife's dearest friend. Can I just tell you this? They are great friends to have. You don't get better friends than the Hamaya family. We call it the Hamassers, you know? Hamaya and Nasser melted together, the Hamassers. We're the Hamassers. And I can tell you right now, like, they, they, his kids are like my kids. My kids are like his kids. It's, it's, I love Alex Hamaya. He makes an amazing friend. My wife can tell you, I love Meredith Hamaya. Uh, she was supposed to be at the 9 o'clock, but I think she's, is she here? Oh, second row today. There you are. All right, cool. <laughs> the one week her husband's not preaching, she's not sitting in the front row. All right, cool. <laughs> second row. All right, so I, I, can I just say, I love Meredith Hamaya. She makes an amazing friend, but she makes a horrible God. She makes a horrible God. She's not the bread of life. 
Alex would tell you she makes an amazing wife, but she makes a horrible God. Alex would do her a disservice if he positioned her to be his great satisfaction because she would let him down. It's not fair to her. Her, her own daughter is sitting right there. Lemley's sitting right there. She makes a great mom, but she makes a horrible God. She makes a great daughter, but she makes a horrible God. Some of you have made your kids your God. You've made your kids the bread of your life, and they've left you wanting. Some of you have made your job the bread of life, and it's left you wanting. It's unfair to take someone that you love, something that was a blessing from God, and turn them into a curse because you've elevated them into a position that was only meant for God himself. Does that make sense? And Jesus is saying good things and bad things. Even sometimes bad things become good things become good things. I mean, bad things, when we make them an idol, all of these things will leave you wanting but me. Jesus is saying no one can bring you satisfaction. No one can bring you salvation. No one can bring you wholeness. No one can bring you completeness. No one can but me. I am. This guy, Jesus says, is the bread of life. Now, how many of you believe that to be true? That's the text today. That's the text today. If somebody invited you to church today, and this is the first time you've ever like, come into the, the scope of Christendom or a church, let me just say, you, you picked a good Sunday to come because we basically are looking at one Bible verse that just says it all. Jesus is everything. Amen? And everything else is a distant nothing compared to him. Nothing compares, the Apostle Paul says, to the greatness of knowing you. But that's the text. That's the text. But what's interesting about this text is the context by which the text is presented. The context of this text is that Jesus says what he says in John 6, 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life on the back end of the story of the feeding of the masses. The day before Jesus says what he's about to say, the day before this text that we just read is the day where Jesus walks into a mountainside environment where there are about 15,000 people there. And I know if you back up in your Bible, if you have one opened up, it says the feeding of the 5,000. It says the feeding of the 5,000 because there were 5,000 men there. All right, so there was the men, and then there was the women, and then there were the kids, and this is before birth control. So basically think Catholic numbers, all right? So you basically, most theologians believe there are like 15,000 people there, and there's a day, right, where Jesus walks into an environment, and there are 15,000 people that are there. And out of 15,000 people, if you know the story, you know that 14,999 of them have not brought anything to eat, <laughs> If you know the story, you know that 15,000 people are there and no one packed a lunch. Everyone's looking around going, did you pack a lunch? No, I thought you brought something to eat. I thought you brought something to eat. And there is one teenager who brought plenty for himself. You know the story, right? There's one kid who's got a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread, plenty for himself. One responsible teenager that brought, let's just call it probably a homeschooler. One kid. Who brought plenty for himself, nowhere near enough for everybody else. He comes into an environment where everybody's hungry, and Jesus walks into the environment, and this little boy sees that he's got plenty for himself, nowhere near enough for everybody else, and instead of hoarding it, he brings a little bit that he has to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, and he multiplies it, and he turns it into an all-you-can-eat buffet. And it's incredible, isn't it, that Jesus takes this little bit of fish, little bit of bread, brings it 
By the way, can I just, since we're in this all-in moment, can I just say what's amazing about that story is that Jesus didn't need the little boys, a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. He let the little boy be generous. He let the little boy bring all in. The little boy didn't have enough for everybody, but he had enough to bring to Jesus. And then Jesus does the most. Maybe you're, you're hearing about the campaigns and the things that are audaciously, you know, said from this stage that, that this church wants to reach the city and reach the world in and all these things. And you're like, I don't have nearly the bank account to do that. That's, that's, that's the beauty of this. Like, you, you come all in. You bring your little bit of fish, your little bit of bread. You bring the little bit you got to him. He does the multiplication. We bring the water to him. He turns it into wine. We bring the little bit of fish to him. He makes it an all-you-can-eat buffet. God's just calling. And the little boy doesn't have to. Check this out. He gets to be involved in the miracle. Jesus doesn't need his little bit of fish, little bit of bread. He lets him in on it. We get to be all in in the kingdom of God. And Jesus takes a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. He turns it into an all-you-can-eat buffet. The next thing you know, man, everybody is eating to the point where not only is everybody eating, not only are all 15,000 people fed, there are baskets of leftovers. And the disciples take from the baskets of leftovers, and then they, they're able to be fed. And then, and then, forward from that moment where Jesus met their need to the next day, the next day, these people that he fed the day before get up. They're hungry again because physical bread is not spiritual bread. And they're hungry again. So they, they think about the person who fed them the day before. And they come around the Sea of Galilee. And that's when they run into Jesus again. And that's when we run into John 6, 35. And that's when Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. So you got the text. I'm everything. And then you got the context. The day before, Jesus walks into an environment where people have a need and he meets it. I know this is very, very elementary, but I just want to pull from this text a few application points. First of all, did you notice that the greatest preacher of all time found 15,000 people the day before and he didn't preach? I mean, can, can we just call it Jesus is the greatest preacher of all time? You know, I, I, I know this place is uh, in the summertime is a carousel of communicators. You got like people like Ted Cunningham come in here last week and, you know, just incredible pastors who come in like that all the time. And, and they're all different in their own way. And uh, we were actually talking in the green room about some of the staff was talking about how much they love uh, certain things about Alex's preaching style, you know, versus somebody else's preaching style and all these different things. And, and how like everyone is such fearfully and wonderfully made by God. But, but think about the compliments you would give to different people like sometimes you go I love his content it just feels like he's got content you ever think of a preacher whose content is good have you ever met anybody whose content is better than Jesus the creator of all content <laughs> I mean seriously in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God that's John 1 right it tells us that in the beginning before there was a beginning there was a beginner who began the beginning Jesus the creator of all content and so you're not going to get better content than Jesus. Some people go, well, you know, I really like this guy's communication style because he feels like he knows what I'm thinking. He, he, I'm sitting in the fifth row, but as he communicates, he feels like he just knows what I'm thinking. Like somebody handed him a sticky note of what I've been going through this week. No one's going to ever feel more like that than Jesus. Jesus knows right now, in this very moment, what you're thinking. He knows everything you've ever thought, and he knows what you're going to be thinking next Tuesday. 
put that in your pipe and smoke it. You don't know what you're going to be thinking next Tuesday. Jesus knows next Tuesday at 942, whatever, Eastern, Central, Pacific time, put whatever you want. You're not going to trip them up. Jesus knows what you're going to be thinking nine Tuesdays from now. You got to go ask your iPhone, ask Siri what nine Tuesdays from now even is. Jesus knows at that particular moment what you're going to be going through, what you're going to be thinking. So talk about timing, the one who holds all time. No one's going to have better content. No one's going to have better timing. No one's going to have more prophetic truth. No one's going to. The greatest preacher of all time walks into an environment where there are 15,000 hungry people and he doesn't go, somebody get up here with skinny jeans, lead a few songs, get me a microphone, let me at him. No, the greatest preacher of all time finds 15,000. 15,000 hungry people, and what does he do? He feeds them. I know that sounds really, really elementary, but he feeds them. Now, you can, Jesus, you can say they ultimately need the bread of life. Amen. But their immediate need is they're hungry. And Jesus walks into an environment where people are hungry, and he meets their immediate need. Now, after he meets their immediate need, he earns the right the next day to speak into their life because he met their immediate need to be able to bring to them, propose to them what their eternal need is. But the reason that he could confront them in grace, in kindness, what their eternal need is, is because he began the conversation the day before with an act of kindness. I call it worship service. He served. The greatest preacher of all time finds a need and he meets it. And once he meets it, it massages the heart of the people. It tenderizes, you know, it makes porous the people. And then the next day, he speaks truth. He does this over and over again. This is the statement of, um, this is the first statement of the seven great I am sayings of Christ, where Jesus calls himself Yahweh, I am, a statement only reserved for God to be able to utter, and then he closes the sentence with, a, with a, metaphor, a metaphor about who he is. This is the first of the seven. You know, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the open door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am, you know, and over and over again, Jesus, I am the light of the world. And over and over again, Jesus makes these I am statements. This is the very first time that he makes it. But what's interesting is that Jesus makes this statement, again, in the context of, of, of an act of kindness where it validified that he cares enough to tell the truth out of compassion. The reason I say that is because I think um, a lot of times we get caught up with churches or with organizations that do good in a community, but they do it and it feels like social gospel. Or they do it and it just feels humanitarian. Or they do it and it just feels like an act of goodness, but it doesn't really close the deal. Uh, and, And you don't mind it when it's just an organization out there that's doing it, but you do mind it when it's a church. When, when a church does an act of kindness, but then they don't ever share the gospel with people. You hear about that church and you go, man, they, they're doing some good in the community, but they don't ever point to Jesus who ultimately does eternal good in their life. Or you have churches who just kind of preach the truth every week from a pulpit, but they never get out in between Sundays and actually sweat out their faith, right, by doing goodness in the community. And what Jesus shows us here is that if you want to love the truth, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to love the truth, the way you're going to present me the truth is you got to back up and say, 
this is the way of Jesus will lead me to the truth of Jesus, which eventually will lead people to the life of Jesus. And he's our perfect example in that. You know, we live, um, we live in a world today, speaking of bread, okay, um, where 36,000 people today will die of starvation on our watch. That's a crazy stat, isn't it? When you think about how much food we threw away this week, how many cucumbers went bad in my veggie drawer, you know? And I mean, well, I don't consider myself a super wasteful person. I hope you don't as well, but did you throw away anything this week out of the refrigerator? It's not that we, we have a shortage of food issue in this world. It's just that, like, we have food in this world. We just can't get it to people. We, we live in a world today where 36,000 people today will die of starvation. Do you know what it takes to die of starvation? Uh, September 11th happened, and um, we lost 3,300 Americans that day. Do you remember September 12th, how packed our churches were? How we all gathered together. I, I went to my church. I wanted to be around my pastor. We were all on bed and knee. Do you remember how full our altars were? People on bend and knee asking God for revival. Do you remember how it shook us to the core? It should have shaken us to the core. It's not a bad thing that that happened. But can I just say this? On September 11th, we lost 3,000 plus Americans. And on September 12th, our churches were filled with bended knees crying out. Today, today, 36,000 people will die of starvation. Where are the tears of the saints? Where the bended knees packed up going on our watch right now, the little boys and little girls that are dying of starvation during this moment. And it's hard, it's hard to say to them, Jesus is the bread of life when they're going, I can't hear you because my stomach's growling too loud. If that's not our responsibility as the church, then whose responsibility is it? To try to figure out a way to do that. Jesus is living water, Amen. And ultimately, people need to know that he is the great refreshment. He is the only one that can satisfy the thirst in their soul. But today, there's so many people who will bend down and drink dirty water, and they will get malaria, and they will die, age of 11, age of 12. And so we, we validate the gospel when we walk in Jesus' name, and we drill a well somewhere. And after we drill the well somewhere, someone shows up and says, now why did you show up halfway across the world and build a well? Or why did you bring trucks of food over to us during this, this, this hunger crisis? Or, or why, why did you do what you... We, we build the opportunity to speak that truth when we meet a need, but we don't just stop short. And when they ask the conversation, we say, because... Jesus compels me to come and care for you. You matter to God. You matter to me. And that's why I'm stepping in. My, my new role is to wake up every day and think about the kids in the foster care system in America. Uh, as an organization called For Others. And we, uh, we wake up every day and think about the kids who are just orphans in America. Kids who just don't have a place to call home. And, and ultimately, they need to be adopted into the kingdom of God. Amen? Ultimately, there's no salvation in being placed in a really good home here in America. Like, uh, there's no salvation in just a kid. But, you know... There are 183 million orphans on the planet today. Kids who don't have a mama, don't have a dad, don't have a place to call home. And it's hard. It's hard for them to really receive this reality 
that God is a God who says in Scripture, you know, I'm a good father. God, I love that passage, how great is the love of the father, that we would be called the children of God. It's hard to preach that to them when they're going. When I think about the word father, I think about somebody who left me. And so what happens is we, we walk into the adoption world. We walk into the foster care system. We, we open up our home. We go, there's, a, there's an empty nest moment going on here. Like, like there's two extra bedrooms. We open up our lives so that when those children are in our care and the kid says, why do you give a rip? You go, because I ultimately, ultimately love you and care for you. And since you're asking, my ultimate intention is not to provide for you immediate needs, but to provide for you an opportunity to be pointed to your eternal need, which is Jesus. And Jesus models that for us. I think a lot of us know somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Anybody here know somebody who doesn't know the Lord? And we want them to know the Lord. We want them to hear the truth because the truth will set them free. But sometimes we're not willing to back up and do the way of Jesus so that they can hear the truth of Jesus and they can come to the life who is Jesus. And the way is always the combination lock that opens it up to the truth. The reason I was thinking about this text a lot is because um, we recently had a friend passed away. His name was Phil Newberry. Uh, Meredith can tell you that Phil and Jeannie were such an example to, um, to, to the, uh, both couples. Uh, I, uh, I just fell in love with this guy who was a youth pastor who was um, um, a bit of a Yoda to us. And his wife Jeannie uh, just celebrated his life at the memorial service uh, two Sundays ago. And um, I was thinking about his legacy and the impact that he had on so many of our lives, Meredith. And my first memory of Phil, we became dear friends. He ended up serving on our board of directors and we had a long, long uh, friendship that lasted tens and tens of years. And, but um, I was thinking about the very first time I ever met him. And it was such a picture of this text that we're studying today and the context by which he was served out. The first time I ever met Phil, um, he was the youth pastor of this church, uh, Bellevue Baptist Church out of Memphis, Tennessee. And back then, they were the largest youth ministry in America. And they asked me to come and be their guest preacher for this retreat that they were having in Gatlinburg. And so uh, Jennifer and I, my my wife and I went and uh, we we, we, uh, were with these teenagers, these senior high teenagers for four nights during this Christmas break retreat. They'd taken over the stays in. Uh, there were massive youth groups, so they took about 500 people with them to this, this place, and they basically had taken over this entire days in. And uh, for five nights, man, we would gather together in the morning sessions, gather together in the evening sessions, and then they would be all around Gatlinburg. And, and for five nights, we just got to know Phil and Jeannie. It's the first time we'd ever done anything with them, this, this power couple, this youth pastor, and, and we got to know their teenagers. And the last day of the event, the, the, like after the, the event was over, the last very morning, uh, Jennifer and I were leaving the days in. We were finished with the event. We get in the elevator, and we were on the top floor, and um, we got our like little roller bags, and we, as soon as we got in the elevator, the elevator door closes, and it goes down one level, and as soon as it opened up, this cleaning lady comes on. I knew she was the cleaning lady because she had the cart, you know, and she had the apron, so it was obvious, and, you know, she, uh, the cleaning lady apron, and so she comes in, the elevator closes, and as soon as it closed, she's not facing us. Like, we're in the back of the elevator when we saw her coming in. We backed up all the way. So she comes in. She's facing the elevator door, but we can see her, and, and the cart's between us and the lady, but we can hear that she's crying because she's going, <laughs> and her shoulders are going like this. 
So my wife looks at me like she can't see us. So my wife looks over at me, Jennifer, and she goes, she goes, she's crying. And I look back at her and I go, I know. And she looks right back at me and she goes, say something, say something. And I'm looking at her like, why would I say something when you're here? Because she is so much better at these kind of moments at saying something. I've done my like Enneagram test and, you know, I, I know my, t- I, I am a leader. Uh, I'm a salesman. I am, you know, visionary uh, preacher. She's the counselor. You know, like if, if you meet me afterwards and you come up to me in a little while and you're like, my husband and I are going through a divorce. I'll be like gum. I'm just bad, all right? She, she will get your phone number. She will Zoom with you a Bethmore Bible study for nine months. She'll send you stuff on Amazon. That's her. She's the shepherd. So, like, she's looking at me, and she's going, say something. And I'm looking at her like, you say something. And the elevator's just going further down and down and down. And so I realize we're about to lose this moment. So between the second and the first floor, I reach around the cart. And you know how in the elevator, there's all these buttons you push, but there's that one red button you pull? I just pulled it. This is before September 11th when Iranians could do stuff like that. All right, so I just, I just pull it. So, like, the elevator just stops between the second and first floor. And so she's startled. She turns around, and, and, and I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry to startle you. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I said, this is my wife, and um, we just noticed you were crying. And I'm sorry to stop the elevator, but before we got out of this elevator, we, we just wanted to ask you, are, are you okay? Are you all right, ma'am? Can, can we do anything for you? And as soon as I said, are you okay? Can we do? She, I didn't even finish the sentence. She goes, are you with these people? Like the dam just broke. She goes, are you with these people? And, and I knew what she meant. She's talking about the people that have taken over this hotel for the past four nights. This youth group. And immediately I just went to presumption. I just thought one more person in the service industry brought to tears by a youth group gone wild, right? She was like, are you with these people? And I said, no, ma'am, because I wasn't officially with them. I was just their guest. I said, no, ma'am, I'm not with them. She goes, what's wrong with these people? She goes, I thought they were everybody. You guys are guests. She goes, have you been around these people? She goes, what's wrong with these people? She goes, I'm sorry to be emotional, but, but, uh, but I don't know if you've been around these people for the last few days that have taken over this group, this church group or whatever they are. She goes, I've never seen anything like it. She goes, I'm sorry to be emotional, but, but she reaches in her apron and she pulls out this wad of cash. And she goes, this is like $1,100 from just today. And yesterday they gave me like $700. And every day these kids keep tipping us and tipping us, not just me. It's all the cleaning ladies. I've never seen somebody ask for an extra shift, but we're all asking for extra shifts because <laughs> these kids keep tipping and they keep saying and she goes and I'm just I'm sorry to be emotional but I just found out this morning they're leaving and I'm just emotional because I don't want them to leave and I got to tell you I forgot my name tag and they know my name no one ever takes the time to know my name she goes and I'm just so sorry to be emotional but they're just so nice to me and she pulls up this uh, this bible like from under these towels she goes these boys went out and bought a bible and put my name on it and they sat me down and I, I you know they, one of them gave me a foot rub and I got bunions I was like lady you don't have to show me she goes I got bunions she goes and I, I've just never been around them and I go before we go any further I do want to clarify I actually am with them I'm <laughs> I'm actually kind of like their leader I just don't all glory to God but anyway so she goes, oh, you're with them? She goes, can I just ask you, what's wrong with them? And finally, my wife speaks up. She finally looks at the lady and she goes, I can tell you what's the matter with them. Jesus is the matter with them. She goes, let me tell you what's wrong with them. Jesus is wrong with them. She goes, what do you mean? She goes, 
Jesus is wrong with them. She goes, I, I, she goes, every week, all we get around here are youth groups and, and single, like, you know, church single ministries. And she goes, we just get, every time we look at the parking lot of this church, I mean, there's this hotel, it's just, it's just vans that have names of churches. She goes, I've just never been around, been around a lot of church people. I've just never been around anything like this. She goes, these, these are the weirdest teenagers. Because she was right. They weren't acting natural. They were acting supernatural. And my wife looks at her and she says, I, I can tell you what's wrong with them. Jesus is wrong with them. And between the second floor and the first floor, literally with a golf, like a, with a I mean, cleaning cart between, my wife led this lady to the Lord. And five minutes later, we, we go down one more level and the elevator opens up and we all roll out. All three of us just crying and the youth group, some of the kids from the youth group are standing there and they're all like, Peggy! And I'm like, Peggy got saved. And they're like, what? You know, and we're just celebrating. And I've never, I've never had it so easy. I've never led someone to Christ so easy. She didn't know. She was literally initiating the conversation about the gospel with us. Why? Because she saw Christians who were Christ-like. She saw believers who were believable. She saw the people of grace be gracious, be graceful. And when I think about Phil Newberry and the legacy that he left, I think about a man who told the truth, but he didn't tell it with a pointed finger, going, I'm right and you're wrong, and I'm going to heaven and you're going to hell. No, I, I see a guy who said, the way we're going to model this is the truth is too good not to serve with a posture of humility and kindness and generosity. And I'm just telling you, People are going to take us much more seriously. People are going to take these songs we sing, all right, and take them with a lot more weight, not make light of them when they see it served up with a posture where they don't think Christians are right-wingers with guns in their hand, but they think Christians are the people of God with towels in their hands, with rakes in their hands, with acts of service in their hands. And they're not about exercising their rights as much as they are about giving up their lives. And I'm just telling you, this could be our finest hour. When we say we believe this to be truth and we don't get to compromise on this truth and we don't get to change this truth and it is absolute truth and we need it more than ever and it's harder to hear more than ever but because it's harder to hear more than ever we need to be on bended knee serving people a lot more than ever. It's going to get you to just where we are just to bow your heads with me just for a second. Can I just ask you, there might be someone today that where this, this theology just becomes very practical for you. There might be someone that God's brought on your heart. You're thinking about a family member. You're thinking about a next-door neighbor. You're thinking about a person God's put in your scope recently that, um, that God has put a burden in your heart to share the truth with. And in this moment, you realize, um, man, that truth, that truth can certainly be much more palatable if it's entered in, if it's ramped in, if it's bridged over kindness. And yes, I, I got to tell you, it does look like us walking into the life of um, the foster care system. And it does look like us walking into the life of the homeless man downtown Tulsa. But for so many people in your scope, it's not about someone who needs a physical thing. It's about like 
the lady in your neighborhood who might even financially be richer than you, but spiritually is bankrupt and just needs a friend, needs an advocate. Maybe the way you serve her is um, you invite her to that party. You open up your neighborhood. Maybe you, the way you serve that new family from Pakistan who moved into your community is you, you enter into their life. I, I love what Jesus does with the woman at the well. He does the exact same thing. He, what she needs most is someone who is willing to just associate with her, be kind to her. In the middle of daylight where it was scandalous to be next to her, he just comes and he sits with her. His presence, his companionship is what he offers to her. By the end of the story, he says to her, go and sin no more. But that's on the back end. That's later in the story. And so whether it's kindness, whether it's a care moment, whether it's a need, whether it's um, you just help somebody at work, you help them get to the finish line, but you don't need credit for it. You just let them get credit for it. Maybe there's a way today that you can say, Jesus, um, help me find a way to be like you so that the gospel, the gospel will be teed up where they say, this is foolish kindness. This is radical generosity. Why? And that we could say, Jesus, you're the matter with us. Anybody here thinking today at any of our campuses, thinking today about an individual that you just ask God to just, Holy Spirit, give me opportunities not just to serve them, but to have the boldness then to speak the truth and let them see them come to life. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you, God, for this theology that rings true in our lives. At the end of the day, we, we stop and we think about Jesus, you as the bread, and we thank you that you came and you satisfied us. Anybody here, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I go share it with someone else. And we pray this in your name.